you can imagine what I felt in my heart. You can imagine how difficult it was to remain silent. You see, the Roman church teaches that a sinner is justified by being baptized in the Catholic faith. A decision actually made by the parents most of the time when a child is just an infant. But the scriptures teach that we are saved, that we are, I should say, by God's grace alone declared righteous, a righteousness based upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, faith is the sole instrumental cause of justification. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, but to the one who does not work. He's talking about working for salvation, working to be made right before God, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, it is credited, it is imputed to him as righteousness. So, folks, it is not faith plus works. It is faith alone. It is certainly true, though, that saving faith produces good works. Good works, however, adds absolutely nothing to faith as a cause of justification. The Apostle Paul made it clear in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You see, it's all the gift of God, the grace, the salvation, and the faith. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. You see, we are created in Christ as new creations created by Christ for good works. So a regenerate man naturally produces good works. He has been created by God to do so. So it is perfectly natural for those who have been raised from spiritual death to a new life in Christ to desire to be baptized, to be immersed into the body of Christ, to demonstrate through baptism that they have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But folks, baptism adds absolutely nothing to our justification. Rather, the desire to be baptized is the evidence of regeneration, of a changed heart, of the work of God in us. The Roman church taught and still teaches that a man is justified by baptism. It's really faith plus works. But for the infant, the faith comes later. This teaching does not come from the Holy Scriptures. It's nowhere to be found. It comes from popes and councils. You see, on the contrary, the Reformers believed, based upon sola scriptura, Scripture alone, that the sole instrumental cause of justification is faith alone. This is how Luther responded, unless I'm convinced by sacred Scripture or by evident reason. I cannot for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Then at the Council of Trent in 1543, the Roman church announced anathema on anyone that says that justification is received by faith alone. They announced people like you and I, to be eternally condemned. 
But it was during the Reformation that many people stopped caring what the Roman church thought and turned to the word of God as their sole authority. Last week, we ended with Galatians 5.1, where Paul writes, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Certainly, Luther stood firm on the gospel of grace and the freedom that we have in Christ through the gospel. May we together, like Luther, may we with him stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. May we never be subject to a yoke of slavery, never trust any means of righteousness other than Jesus Christ alone. God's grace is based solely upon the person and the work of Christ and received through faith alone. Luther stood firm in the freedom of the gospel and rejected the heresy of baptismal regeneration as a means of righteousness. You see, throughout history, the church has had to deal with various false teachings, heresies that strike at the very heart of the gospel. In this epistle to the Galatians, Paul is dealing with one such heresy, a false teaching that adds works to faith as a means or a cause of righteousness, a heresy that faith alone is insufficient, that circumcision and law-keeping must be added to faith. And as we have seen, the Apostle Paul stood firm in the freedom from the heresy of law-keeping, like Luther did from baptismal regeneration. Neither trusted those things neither taught those things as a means of righteousness. So the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, where he continues to refute this heresy. He writes, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are being justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are eagerly awaiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. The Judaizers taught a works-based righteousness. It's really the same heresy which is the basis for every man-made religion. You see, every belief system apart from biblical Christianity teaches that a man is made right before God on the basis of his human effort, on the basis of the works of the flesh. This is even true among many under the umbrella of Christendom. But biblical Christianity teaches that God himself makes the sinner righteous. It's an act of his grace. It is a gracious benefit purchased by Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death, and it is received solely by faith, even a faith that is the gift of God. The Judaizers, rather than seeing circumcision as a sign of the covenant God gave to Abraham and his seed, taught that circumcision had spiritual value in making you right before God. Rather than it being a reminder of God's promised blessing, it was seen as a means of gaining favor, righteousness before God. Understand the cutting away of the male foreskin was meant to be a reminder, not only as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, 
and that God was cutting a people out of a fallen world, but it was also a reminder of God's plan to cut away the evil from the hearts of his people. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. It's the promise of the new covenant. God promised to cut away all the vile, selfish affections and separate men unto God. To give his people a love for God, even the love of God, which has been poured out in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Paul's issue was not circumcision itself. Being a Jew, he was certainly circumcised on the eighth day. Paul's issue was the teaching that circumcision brought sinners into a righteous standing before God. The Judaizers were saying that faith in Christ alone was insufficient as a means of justification. They were saying that what Christ had accomplished in the new covenant had to be perfected by one's own effort through the flesh by being circumcised and then adhering to the Mosaic Covenant. They said at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They said it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. The issue was clearly dealt with at this church council. But Paul addresses it again here. Probably it had occurred the very same year. This was later that year. But he's addressing it here. This whole book is addressing the issue. He's addressing it as he writes to these believers in Galatia. So in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, through six excuse me, Paul points out three tragic consequences of trusting in circumcision as a means of righteousness. First, the forfeiting of all benefits in verse 2. The impossible obligation in verse 3. The severing from Christ or from grace in Christ, verse 4. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul concludes by contrasting grace with the law as he turns his focus back to the way of grace. So let's begin in verse 2, the forfeiting of all spiritual benefits. He begins, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you. Paul here reminds the Galatians of who is, who is writing to them. The following consequences come, in other words, with divine authority. Paul was an apostle, not sent from men. He didn't have the authority of man, not sent through man. Man did not send him, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's words here, therefore, are God-breathed and must be taken seriously. To disregard God's word is to disregard God himself, the God of the word, the one from whom all benefits, all blessings flow, you see. So again, the Apostle Paul writes, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. 
Paul is saying if you receive circumcision as a means of gaining merit, as a means of gaining righteousness before God, then Christ will be no benefit. The word means no use, no advantage, no profit to you. Christ and his glorious salvation is of no benefit to those who trust in anything other than him alone. How can Christ be a benefit to anyone who adds to his perfect atonement, who adds circumcision or baptism or anything else as a means of righteousness to the perfect and finished work of the saving Messiah? John Gill wrote, Christ is a whole Savior or none at all. How profound. The Judaizers taught that faith in Christ was not enough. Really, that Christ was not enough. One must get circumcised and then keep the commandments. But to add anything to Christ's perfect righteousness and his substitutionary death is to demonstrate contempt for the person and work of Christ. To such persons, Christ is no prophet. He is no benefit. He is no advantage. Even if they profess him publicly, even if they call upon him as Lord, You see, salvation is based solely upon Christ and his perfect work. You see, he purchased our salvation on our behalf. And salvation is received through the instrumental cause of faith. It's just that simple. It is easy today, sadly, to find preachers who add works to the work of Christ. They say, yes, Christ died for sinners, but you must do this. Just fill in the blank. You can find it all. But when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in Acts 16, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. Believe here. Pistuzon here is an imperative verb. In other words, it's a command. You must believe. You see, this is not a suggestion. It is a command that comes with divine authority. But it's not just believing the facts about Christ. It's not even believing just that he died and was buried and rose from the dead. The base word pastuo means to trust, to be persuaded, to put your confidence in, even to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole Savior who is both Lord and Savior, his work is finished, and his work is sufficient to save to the uttermost, to save to completion, as we'll see. You see, he is enough. His perfect righteousness and substitutionary death is efficacious for all who will ever believe. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25. He is able. It's not the typical word for able. It's dunamai. It's, it speaks of power. He is powerfully able. It's the word from which we get the word dynamite, by the way. He is powerfully able to save completely. There it is. To save to completion. To completely deliver. That's the idea. To completely rescue. To completely make whole. All that is bound up in the word save. He is able. Powerfully able to save completely the one's coming through him to God. You see, he is the way, the only way. He is the truth, the only truth, and he is the life, the only life. No one, 
Never forget this. No one comes to the Father except through him. So to trust in anything other than the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, the saving messianic Lord of glory, is to forfeit, forfeit every benefit, every spiritual blessing, because they're all found in Christ. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But you know, outside of Christ, we remain under the curse of sin. So if you accept any other means of righteousness other than through faith alone in Christ alone, Christ will be absolutely no benefit, no profit, no advantage to you. It doesn't matter whether you call on his name, whether you confess him as Lord, whether you publicly say that I'm a believer if you're not trusting in him. The first consequence of trusting anything other than Christ alone is forfeiting all spiritual benefits. We've already more than hinted at it. Paul writes, oh, I said that. I got that confused. Sorry. Tired this morning. The first consequence of trusting anything other than Christ alone is forfeiting all spiritual benefits. The second, that's where we're at, is the impossible obligation. And folks, this is also profound. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Paul begins this verse, and I testify again to every man. Testifies a strong Greek word. It means strong protest. He's testifying with a protest. So with strong protest, Paul writes to every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you wish to obtain righteousness by law-keeping, Folks, you must obey it perfectly. The Apostle James wrote, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has been, become guilty of all. You see, God's standard is perfect righteousness. Not an incomplete, imperfect righteousness, but perfect righteousness. Anyone who wishes to be righteous by law-keeping must not fail in even one command. And you know one example? If a man, even for an instant, is to look upon a woman with lust, he has fallen short of God's glory and has broken the whole law. He's a lawbreaker. If you wish to stand before God based upon your own merits, based upon your ability to keep God's law, you must be holy as he is holy. You see, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it's no wonder Paul had warned them by quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26, back in chapter 3, verse 10, where he writes, Cursed is everyone, listen to this, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. What an obligation, an impossible requirement. God's standard of righteousness is so high. It is so impossible to attain in and of ourselves that it should drive us to seek God's mercy. And isn't that the point of the law? The law is a schoolmaster 
to bring us to Christ, to drive us to him, to his mercy. You see, Christ is our mercy seat. He's the only one in whom there is mercy. It is only in him that we receive grace and mercy and are declared righteous in the eyes of God, not because of anything that we have done, but his righteousness is given to us. You see, our sins were placed upon him, and he bore our sins, and his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his law-keeping is given to us so that we can stand before God perfectly holy, not because, again, we've done anything, but because he is perfectly holy, and by his grace that is given to us. The consequences for trusting anything other than Christ is the forfeiting of all spiritual benefits, the impossible obligation, and then thirdly and lastly, the severing from grace, the grace of Christ. Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are being justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Paul is addressing those who are trusting in their law-keeping as a means of justification. And he makes two statements. You have been severed from Christ, and you have fallen from grace. So what does it mean to be severed from Christ? Severed, the Greek word, is kardageo. When this word is used, followed by a preposition, it means to be separated or to be loose from. Those who trust in the works of the law are separated. They're loosed from Christ. Paul tells us that you also have fallen from grace. Fallen here means to lose one's, to lose one's grasp on something. A person cannot live by both law and grace. To attempt to be justified by the law is to lose one's grasp on the only means through which a sinner can be saved. The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of God's grace. Paul here is not dealing with the security of the believer, but he is contrasting the ways of grace and the way of the law as means of salvation. John MacArthur writes, He is not teaching that a person who has once been justified can lose his righteous standing before God and become lost again by being circumcised or otherwise legalistic. You see, this would be contrary to the scriptures, to the gospel, to many biblical texts. Paul says in Romans 8.30, Whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Salvation is dependent upon God from beginning to end. Those whom he justified are already glorified in eternity. For the believer to turn back to the law as a means of salvation, as a means of perfecting his righteousness, is to reject the glorious salvation offered by the grace of God, to add circumcision or any other works to what Christ has accomplished by grace, is to reject Christ and therefore one lose one's grasp Lose one's grasp on the grace of God offered to the sinner. That's the point. You see, although Paul addresses the Galatians as saints, he does not assume that everyone is a believer that's under the reading of these words. And we see that throughout the epistles. 
if, if anyone is exposed to the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ, and then turns away, is to apostatize. It is to fall from grace, to fall away from the promise of the gospel. For those who, after being enlightened with the heavenly gift through the Spirit, turn away, there's no longer any hope for them, because Christ is the only means of God's grace. He's the only means of forgiveness. He's the only means of righteousness. Now notice Paul's conclusion in verses 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncirc uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Here Paul explains the way of grace. But notice how it contrasts with the way of law in the previous verses and the consequences of the law in the previous verses. Paul says for us, those who are trusting solely in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It literally says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is skuo. It's more than just means anything. It means has no power, has no ability for us, certainly not as a means of righteousness. You see, there's no saving power in the law, for we cannot keep it. For us, those who are simply trusting in Christ, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. When we're born again, we are imputed, we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we grow in the practice of righteous living. It's called practical sanctification. But we understand we are never in this life perfectly righteous in our practice. We are never in this life set apart completely unto holiness. We're never in this life glorified with the glory of Christ. However, we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is the promise of a righteousness in which even the stain, even the effects, even the consequences, even the presence of sin is removed and we are glorified with the glory that belongs to Christ. This complete righteousness is our hope given to us through the Spirit by faith. Paul declares in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I considered the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, the very glory of God himself. So we await a complete salvation. We are not perfected yet. We await a perfect righteousness in which even the presence and effects of sin will be removed. These sickly bodies these bodies that are still tempted by sin will be made perfectly righteous in eternity. Notice this hope comes through the Spirit rather than through the flesh. Notice this hope comes by faith working through love rather than by works. Notice through the Spirit by faith we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is perseverance enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, no good deeds no religious effort, no baptism, no circumcision makes any difference in one standing before God. Only Christ makes the difference. 
What matters is not self working through the flesh, but faith working through love. Believers are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But our good works, our working, is the fruit of faith, not a means of righteousness. It's the outworking of a regenerate heart. We do not work to gain righteousness, but we work because God has made us or declared us to be righteous. We work through the motivating power of love. In doing so, we walk worthy, or we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. First, or excuse me, Colossians 1, 10 and 11. You see, it's the love of God in us. It's not our love. It's not a man-generated love, but it's agape love, that self-sacrificial love of God that is in our heart. It's poured out in our hearts by the Spirit. It's that love that fulfills the law. It fulfills what the law demands, as Paul declared a few verses later, and we'll see it in the next couple weeks, actually. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, a person does not steal from people that they love. They don't kill people that they love. They don't lie to people that they love. Love fulfills the law. A person who lives by faith is constrained by the love of God and no longer needs a law to tutor them because love fulfills the law. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you are righteous this morning. You have been declared righteous. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ because he is righteous. Do not try to be perfected by the flesh, but continue to trust in Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death and moment by moment walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. If you're here without Christ, may God enlighten your heart to the truth of the gospel. God's word declares, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe, pistuo, believe, put your confidence, your full trust in. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you. Put your total confidence in him. Stop trusting in your flesh. Stop trusting in any righteousness, so-called righteousness, that you might think you have for our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Trust in the one that is really righteous, that is truly righteous, as we continue to worship through the Lord's table, you are invited this morning to enter into the presence of our Lord and Savior, to sit at his heavenly table and dine with him through prayer and remembering his death. 
The bread represents his body that was broken, and the wine represents his blood. Folks, it is the blood of the new covenant, a better covenant, not like the Mosaic covenant, but a new covenant by which he is our God, and we are his people. This is a holy remembrance, so it is for believers only. And understand, partaking of the Lord's table does not save you. It does not make you any more right before God. This holy remembrance is for God's family. We could say it's a family affair. It's for his children. A remembrance through which we receive the blessings of the gospel. Not salvation, but the blessings of the gospel. As we turn our hearts from heaven to earth as we look upward to the one who died in our place, as we examine ourselves and confess our sins, we certainly grow in sanctification. We grow in the benefits of the gospel. We are motivated and empowered to live out the gospel. But we are commanded to examine ourselves, lest we partake in an unworthy manner. Some in the Corinthian church were sick, and some had actually died. They had disregarded, disrespected the Lord's death. They had partaken of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. May we now enter into God's presence, examining ourselves, considering Christ in worship so that we might not partake in an unworthy manner. May we partake in a worthy manner and glorify the one who bought us. So let's join our hearts together and pray this morning and examine our own selves before God. Confess any sin that you might partake in a worthy manner. So let's pray together.